The um, passage that we're reading this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to um, 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord Jesus, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your word. Father, we look around at the world and we see that the world has thrown off your your walls and your your holiness. But, Father, we pray that we here who are in the church, that we would follow you and obey you. Father, we ask that you will now be with Tom, that you will fill him with your spirit. And we pray, Father, that as we hear these words, that we will follow you and that we will get to know you better and to love you. And then we can serve you, serve you better. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother. That hymn uh, that we just sang blows me away. The very last, very last verse says, Yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. That's what this passage this morning is about. We live in a world uh, that is committed to the lie that says we are the arbiters of our own truth and the masters of our own lives. That lie gets even greater traction here in the land of rugged individualism than it does in some other cultures. And Satan happily employs that lie to devastating effect in the lives of both redeemed and unredeemed people when we apply that lie to our physical bodies. It's my body, and no one gets to tell me what to do with it. When I was much younger, that ridiculous assertion was heard mostly from the lips of hormonal teenagers. But in 21st century America and in much of the world, that lie has become the cultural anthem of the mainstream. It is the new first commandment of modern man. It's my body, 
and no one gets to tell me what to do with it. In recent years, <laughs> the notion that that any earthly authority or unearthly God gets to tell us what we can and cannot do with our own bodies has become anathema to the mainstream of our culture. In fact, no such authority even gets to tell us anymore what gender we are. Our culture now declares with all the zeal of moral certainty that any person, institution, or God that would presume to repress our human flourishing by limiting the inalienable right of every adult to enjoy sex with any other consenting adult or adults in any combination of self-proclaimed genders, any authority that would limit that activity is not only unworthy of our attention, but is the enemy, it is the new enemy of the rights of man. I never thought it would get this far in my lifetime, beloved, but it has. And it seems to be ramping up exponentially. It's dizzying trying to keep up with how quickly this world has cast God away, utterly. This is being proclaimed as a moral imperative in all the institutions of our culture. The press, the entertainment industry, the arts, the marketplace, the schools, and guys, even the kindergartens. Anyone brazen enough to contradict this new first commandment of modern man is cast onto the conveyor belt that, trans that transports all unrepentant violators of the command from marginalization to demonization to criminalization. And we're already at the criminalization phase, if you haven't noticed. Does any of that scare me? No. It scares me only when I take my eyes off of the One who alone controls my well-being in its entirety. Just as He controls yours. The One whose sovereignty is, as Paul said at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, far, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. As I hear the new first commandment of modern man shouted from every direction, I can't help but think of the first few verses of Psalm 2 which King David wrote 3,000 years ago. He said, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His Messiah, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The Holman translation puts that last verse, let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. Whose restraints? God's restraints. It's the same clenched fist against God that produced that new first commandment of modern man. The very next verse of Psalm 2 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. 
And the rest of that explosively powerful psalm is about how the one true God who laughs from heaven at the proud boasts and clenched fists of rebellious men will install His own Son as King over all kings and all dominions to judge the nations and to rule over them with a rod of iron. Verse 12 warns even the most exalted kings of the earth saying, kiss the Son lest He become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. And then the psalm ends with the marvelous promise. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. If you want to make God laugh, declare yourself to be sovereign over anything that He has made. Anything at all. Including your own body. Which we're about to learn isn't actually yours at all. On the other hand, if you want to experience God's extravagant provision and protection, bow down humbly before the Son of God and Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Agree with God that He has absolute authority over your body, your life, and everything else in His creation. It's really quite simple. This passage asserts that authority. But for every child of God, this passage isn't merely about the authority of our Lord and King over our bodies and our lives. It's about the intimate and deeply personal bond that that same ruler of all creation has made between Himself and every man, woman, and child who trusts in Jesus Christ. A bond that will last forever together with all the saints. Paul begins verse 12 by saying, all things are lawful for me. I believe he's repeating a saying that the Corinthian saints had actually gleaned from Paul's own teaching, but that they were badly distorting. The Gospel of Jesus Christ had done away with dozens of detailed restrictions that God had imposed on Israel in the commandments and ordinances given through Moses. Restrictions that, that marked out many foods as unclean. Restrictions that required sacrificial cleansing of pretty much everything in man's experience that has been touched by the curse and by our sin. But the Gospel of Jesus radically changed much of that. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul wrote the following words to his protege, Timothy, whose mother and grandmother, by the way, were Jews, redeemed through faith in Jesus. Paul said, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the Word of God and prayer. It's not too hard to understand how the Corinthian Christians had distilled that down to a statement like, all things are lawful for me. But in their zeal for this newfound freedom, they forgot the if clause. If it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified, that means set apart to God, by means of the Word of God and prayer. 
The freedom that belongs to us as the children of God is not absolute freedom. There is no such thing as absolute freedom for human beings. Here in verses 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lays out two limits on lawful things. Now first I should explain that the word lawful as Paul uses it here essentially means not explicitly forbidden by God. Not explicitly forbidden by God. We are not to assume that our freedom to do those things that are not explicitly forbidden by God is without limits. Here are two limits on lawful things that Paul presents to the church. First, they must be profitable. And second, we must not be mastered by them. First, they must be profitable. How do we know when something that God doesn't explicitly tell us we can't do is profitable or unprofitable? Well, that passage from 1 Timothy I read a moment ago certainly helps with the answer to that question. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is set apart to God by means of the Word of God and prayer. And then he says, listen, he says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you, Timothy, will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. See, Paul directly ties profitable behavior to right doctrine, sound teaching, and to prayer. Now imagine for a moment how our daily behavior would change if we subjected all of the significant things that we do each day to that twofold test. How does it match up with Scripture? And have I submitted it to God in prayer? All right, so the first test that you and I must apply to know whether we should actually do something that God has not forbidden is, is it profitable? As God measures profitability. The second test is, we must not be mastered by it. We live in the most addiction-ridden culture that this world has ever seen. And it's not just drugs and alcohol that fall into the category of relationship-destroying and self-destructive addictions. We have more avenues for addiction than the world has ever known. And we don't even have to get up out of our seats to step firmly onto those avenues. Pornography, video games, binge TV, social media, online shopping, online trading. And that's just a very short part of the, of the whole list, right? The danger of even mentioning any of those things is that you might say, well, I don't have those problems. If there's anything in our lives that we will not set aside in order to do the things that God commands, every one of His children to do in a regular, self-disciplined, and faithful manner, then we are mastered by that thing instead of by God. No man or woman can serve two masters. Jesus said that. Matthew 6. In verses 13 and 14, Paul brings us to the real focus of this call to submit our behavior to God. And that focus is actually about what we do with our physical bodies. Even more specifically, that focus is about what we do with our sexuality. 
Paul tells us God's intention for our physical bodies. And that intention exposes the new first commandment of modern man to be a refuge of shameless lies. The first thing that Paul says about your body and mine is that the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. The beginning of verse 13, Paul says, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. He doesn't defend that saying. He borrows it, I believe, from the popular culture of Corinth for a moment in order to make a point about God's purpose for the physical body of every Christian. The Corinthian culture had a very high view of food and drink. (laughs) The most well-attended gatherings in Corinth were pagan sacrificial feasts in which everyone partook of an abundance of, of food and wine. We'll see later in chapter 11 of this letter that the love of gluttony and drunkenness even found its way into the Corinthian Christians' practice of the Lord's Supper. Paul rebukes the Corinthians here for, uh, there for treating the Lord's Supper as an opportunity for, for filling their stomachs and getting drunk. It's hard to do that with our particular context, but isn't it? The point that Paul is coming to actually is not about gluttony or drunkenness. It's about sexual immorality. The corrupted logic that he's about to blow a hole in went something like this. If my body craves sexual gratification the way my stomach craves food, that must be because my body was designed for sexual gratification the way my stomach was designed for food. How can I deny my body what it was made for? How can I deny my sexuality unhindered use of the very vessel that gives it expression, which is my body? Paul starts shooting down that twisted logic even before he gets past the connection between the stomach and food. He says food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but guess what? God will do away with both of them. He's pointing out uh, that both earthly food and the human stomach are temporary things. Now, I don't know what mechanism God has prepared for the physical nutrition of resurrected and glorified saints, but apparently it's not quite the same as the one that we now know. Paul then proceeds to say, yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. If you'll allow me, and then he says in verse 14, he says, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. (laughs) And if you'll allow me uh, a play on a couple of English words, Paul is saying in essence here that the body is not for immorality, but for immortality. Everlasting union with God. In chapter 15 of the same letter, Paul says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable put on the imperishable. He's going to have a whole lot more to say about the the glorious resurrection of Christ and of every saint in chapter 15. But here he simply says, God has not only raised the Lord, but He will raise us up through His power. Now, if we want to understand God's intention for our physical bodies, Paul is saying we have to look not at these 
temporary mortal tense, we have to look at the body of Jesus Christ. During His earthly life, Christ's physical body was flesh and blood like yours and mine. Jesus faced every temptation such as is common to man, yet without sin. And then Jesus went to the cross to pay our eternal sin debt to God, and He died. He laid down His life. And on the third day, He was raised from the dead. And then He was ascended and now sits at the right hand of the throne of God on high. Christ's body now is a resurrected, glorified body. Perfected. Never again subject to the death and decay that are common to mortal man because of the curse of our sin. Jesus bore that curse in our place. He has now clothed us in His righteousness, qualifying us to dwell in the presence of our perfectly holy and perfectly righteous God. That's our only qualification ever is His righteousness. The mindset of the world tells us that our bodies were designed for our self-gratification. But Paul dispenses with all such foolishness. Our bodies were designed for God in every way that those words can be understood. Our bodies were designed for God. The body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. These bodies have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Not so that we can do with them what we want, but so that God can do with them what He wants. Paul's about to tell us exactly what that is. Alright, so when it comes to what we are to do with these mortal bodies, the first thing we need to know is that just because God has not explicitly forbidden some use of our body, some behavior, that doesn't mean that we get to do it. We must do the things that are profitable, and we must not be mastered by anything on this earth. Our only master is God. The second thing we need to know is that God has eternal purposes for these mortal bodies. We don't find those purposes in earthbound things, no matter how obsessed the world becomes with those things. We find those purposes only in His revealed will that we discover in His Word. And that's what the rest of this chapter is about. The last six verses of this vitally important passage make it clear that we are not waiting, we are not waiting until we get our resurrection bodies to start fulfilling God's eternal purpose for our physical existence. God began carrying out that eternal purpose the moment that He saved every one of us. The moment that He brought us to faith in His Son. Verses 15-20 to demand a view of human sexual relationship that is in its very essence exclusive. It excludes all of humanity except for one person. And it proclaims on earth the exclusivity of our relationship with God. Here are those verses. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? 
may it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself with a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Run from it. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Our bodies are members of Christ. The word members, as Paul uses it here, simply means body parts. Paul's saying that as he will say again in chapter 12, that your whole body and my whole body are parts of Christ's whole body. One preacher a long time ago said that that's not an analogy, that is an organic reality. And I like that. I like that statement. In fact, I think this is the picture, and that's the reality. This body with all these parts is the picture, but the, but the, the grand thing to which it points is what Paul is talking about here. Verses 15 and 16 say that sexual intimacy binds two human beings together into one flesh. And that's true not only when that intimacy occurs between a husband and a wife, but any time physical sexual intimacy occurs. Paul's point is that just as a husband and wife become one flesh on their wedding night, or if they're impatient on their wedding day, in the same way, a man who enters into sexual intimacy with a harlot is one body with her. But the beautiful gift of one flesh union between two people was designed by God to include only One man and one woman. No others. Ever. As long as they both live. In the same way, God designed the one spirit union between Christ and His church to include only Christ and His church. No others. Ever. This passage tells us that that miraculous one spirit union between Christ and His church is true for Christians both corporately, and individually. God has bound you together with Christ and He has bound His church together with Christ forever. But what makes the Christian understanding of sexuality an altogether different matter than the world's understanding is that that one flesh union that sex creates between two people on earth is profoundly connected with the one spirit union between each of those people and God if they are children of God. What happens in the mortal one flesh union between a child of God and another person directly affects the one spirit union between that child of God and God. Paul tells us how that works in verse Verses 18 and 19. He says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body 
Your physical body is a temple, a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. God has made the physical, temporary bodies of every one of His children the earthly dwelling place of God Himself. When a Christian defies his physical body, he defies the very temple, the dwelling place of God on earth. While we're still in these mortal bodies, we're supposed to know that God's purpose for them is to be bearers, vessels of His presence here. Not just vessels that are inhabited by Him, but vessels that show Him off. That put His character and His ways and His works on display in the world that He created. The one flesh union that sex brings about is God's creation, not man's. It's His idea, not ours. In our culture, uh, the scarlet letter is no longer A, it's B for virginity. The panicked quest by young men and women to cast off the scarlet V as quickly as they possibly can is a foolish pursuit of dissipation. The word dissipate in its scientific usage uh, is helpful here. It, it, it means to waste energy by dispersing it so broadly that it ceases to be useful. It's what happens if you try to send house current through a long skinny extension cord and then branch it out at the end to a couple of dozen other outlet strips. If one of those devices that you plug in happens to be a vacuum cleaner, you're out of luck. <laughs> the sexual union between a man and his wife is designed by God to be blessedly supercharged. Sexual promiscuity before marriage dissipates and devalues that which is precious to God and should be priceless to us. Parents, don't shrink back from saying that to your children even if they never listen to it. We must speak the truth in love to all mankind and certainly to the children that God has entrusted to our stewardship. The most foundational truth that we must know about the One who made us for Himself and bought us back for Himself after we turned our backs on Him is that His relationship with us as His people is exclusive. It is exclusive. You know what that means? It means that God is intolerant of all competitors. Now, those aren't words that this world likes. Oprah Winfrey, whom many forums have declared to be one of the most influential women of the 21st century, very proudly says that when she was about 27 years old, her Baptist preacher said, God is a jealous God. He was exactly right. He was speaking rightly from Scripture. She says that was the straw that broke the camel's back for her. That was the turning point that led her 
to reject biblical Christianity. She saw jealousy as a contradiction of the assertion that God is love. And that was a contradiction that she refused to tolerate. This is all public domain. It's not gossip. But it's no contradiction at all. The jealousy of God for His people goes to the very heart of everything that the Bible says about His faithful, fierce, covenant-keeping love for His people. I could go to many, many passages in both Testaments to demonstrate that point, but this passage covers it pretty well. Paul did not commit some terribly awkward accident that makes it look like the sexual union between a husband and wife has a critical connection to our union with Jesus Christ. He knew exactly what he was saying on God's behalf. The nearness and intimacy that God creates between a husband and his bride through their sexual bond is as close as our earthly existence allows for displaying the infinitely greater intimacy of our union with the triune God. In by and because of our union with our Lord Jesus Christ that He brought about. What we must not miss here, beloved, is that your salvation and mine is a deeply, deeply personal matter to God. Throughout both Testaments of His Word, God repeatedly likens His intended relationship with His chosen people to a blessed marriage between a husband and his beloved wife. The earthly marriage is the picture. The glorious reality is the relationship between Christ and His church. Christianity can never be rightly characterized merely as a system of beliefs. It is a relationship of the highest and grandest order. I was brought to tears a couple of days ago as I was as I was pondering this passage, when I thought about how easily distracted I am from the magnitude of that deeply personal gift. How easy it is for me to go an entire day and devote so little thought, so few words in prayer, and so little emotional energy to that relationship. When it is entirely for Him that I exist. And that we, His beloved bride, His church, exist. God's plan of redemption is all about Him buying back for Himself from the midst of spiritually lost and dead humanity a people for His own possession with whom He will dwell forever in pure, and unhindered relationship and fellowship. That relationship, that mystic, sweet communion of the song we sang just talks about is intimate, it is personal, and it is absolutely exclusive. God has no intention of sharing us with this world. He has no intention of sharing us with any misplaced affections that we might have. He is jealous for us with the righteous and perfect jealousy. 
God repeatedly said to Israel, you shall have no other gods before me. And you know what that literally means? You shall have no other gods in my face. God's jealousy for His people is perfectly righteous jealousy. Just as is the jealousy of a husband for the sexual affections of his wife. When God brought you to faith in His Son, He laid claim to you. He bought you for Himself at the extravagant and immeasurable price of His only beloved Son's lifeblood. He now declares you, together with all of the redeemed, to be His treasure, His inheritance. And He declares Himself to be your treasure and your inheritance. You and I are wonderfully and blessedly owned by God. That's what Paul says here. We've been bought with a price. And that is, of course, yet another biblical truth that our culture uh, won't tolerate. The world says, nobody owns me. I'm my own person. If they're talking about created beings, uh, it's a reasonable assertion, I guess, but not if they're talking about their Creator. There are some among us who have already badly violated the purity of God's design for their bodies, for their sexuality. Beloved, you cannot undo the sins of your past, including your recent past. And there may be very enduring consequences for the sins that have violated God's design. Some sins create a wake of damage that is not easily overcome. But we must remember... (laughs) that overcomers is exactly what God has declared us to be. Our God is the God of restoration and reconciliation. He is the One who makes all things new. His grace is indeed greater than all our sin. If you for an instant think that His grace is not greater than your sin, you've got it entirely wrong. His grace overwhelms and overcomes the very worst that we have done or will do. But we must come to Him and we must do life on His terms if we want to experience the blessedness that is every believer's birthright in Christ. Even those believers who have left a wreckage behind them. Until each of us draws his final breath in these not yet redeemed bodies, God's call to you and me every single time we wander is to come back to the purity that nurtures and guards the everlasting union that God has created between us and Him. Together with all the saints. (laughs) That, That union, that relationship is all that is life indeed. You and I have been bought with a price, therefore let us glorify God in these bodies. Beloved and loving Father, that You would give any attention to us at all except in fierce judgment is nothing but grace. But in grace upon amazing grace, You have made us who once were without God and without hope in the world Your chosen race, Your royal priesthood, your holy nation, 
a people for your own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of you who have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We are wonderfully owned by, by you for all eternity. We are wonderfully owned by the lover of our souls. And you've promised us that nothing in all your creation can ever separate us from your love, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We desire that our bodies and our lives would, would put all of your excellencies on brilliant display in this world, even when you're the only one watching. Make us good bearers of the living God. We ask this in the name of our incomparable Savior, our wonderful Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.